it's time for a nap after that fine meal, but we uh, have a question session coming up. But before that, I uh, would like to announce uh, next week's talk. Next week we have Brian Jean, and if you don't remember, he's leader of the Wild Rose Party, and he'll speak to the title, Wild Rose Has a Different Vision for Alberta. Uh, also, Dawn had a pretty rich set of slides, and uh, there's more, inf more information related to his talk would be available on SACPA's website, including his slides. You can hear the audio of his presentation there, and you can even participate in online commentary. Or at least you could the last time I looked. Not a, not a heavily used facility. And there's also a suggestion box outside where you can put forth your idea for speakers or any other aspect of SACPA. Okay, today we learned about activities related to the production and use of biochar, a carbon-rich product of photosynthesis and human ingenuity. Our speaker is Don Harfield of Alberta Innovates. And uh, <laughs> it's time for, time for Don to come back to the podium and uh, we'll get on with our, our uh, question session. So questioners, please come to the microphone. Remember to state your name Keep your comments brief, your questions succinct, and just one or two in number at any time. Okay, I think we're ready to go. Podium's yours again, Don. Thank you again, Dwayne. I appreciate that, and uh, uh, hopefully I'll be able to answer your questions, and uh, uh, I welcome the opportunity to talk to you a little bit further about this through the questions that are being asked. So. Please. Is there a switch on the microphone? It's there. <coughs> now we're on. My name is Henning Mundell, and uh, thank you, Don, for your presentation. I have a sort of two questions. They're interlinked, and they're related to use of biochar for soil amendment. And the one relates to, with the, it seemed like from the one graph you showed, plethora of products, hardwood and softwood being the sort of dominant ones, but then you had quite a few and I saw you had uh, bamboo in there and so on. A with the plethora of products and the other thing is the great diversity of soils in Alberta. For example, I know you mentioned Lethbridge use, but we are very high pH soils down here, but in the Peace River where you're actually uh, done uh, some work there, it's rather acidic. So. What is the impact of which of those materials of woods you use and in relation to which kinds of soils uh, the uh, biochar would be most suitable for uh, soil amendments? Well, thank you very much. Very good question. Uh, first off, there's a variety of feedstocks that can be used. And uh, uh, as you choose your feedstock and you optimize the conditions of your pyrolysis, that will impact on the quality characteristics of your biochar 
and the biochar can be subsequently uh, treated in order to change its pH and its uh, uh, characteristics. Uh, predominantly, biochar will be uh, having a pH in the range of anywhere from about 8 to 11. So that doesn't necessarily help your solenetsic soils. And so it can be treated, and one of the ways of treating it is by using uh, sulfuric acid. And sulfuric acid, you know, it, it'll have a very, very low pH down to 1, 1.5, depending on what concentration you're at. And so it can be useful for adding sulfur into the biochar and can be mix, mixed and blended with uh, uh, manures or composts and, and it can be tailored then to your specific soil application. In severe solenetic soils, it is a really a challenge because no wonder, no, even if you treat the top 12 inches of the soil, it's amazing how much it comes up from down below. So uh, you may have an endless battle with you there. And so uh, uh, the real opportunities for biochar being added to the soils are in low productivity soils and uh, uh, where they are either marginal lands or if they are uh, industrially uh, damaged lands. Solenetic soils are a case uh, most challenging. Thank you for the question. My name is Cosmos Vucic, and thank you for the nice informative presentation. Biochar is perceived as a carbon sink and is a carbon sink in some ways. It could be used to take care of the CO2 in the atmosphere, some people believe. Uh, if that can be done, have you to increase the temperature of the feedstock, you need to input some energy. And that energy will consume fuel because it's a high temperature and will emit some CO2 back to the atmosphere. Has anybody done a CO2 carbon audit to see how efficient it is the cost for the benefit? Yes. The answer is yes. Uh, now, uh, to elaborate a little bit further on that, I'd like to uh, uh, draw your attention to the fact that uh, there was a study done by uh, a fellow by the name of Keith Driver, who was with the Procino Group, and this was commissioned by the Alberta Biochar Initiative. And so this lays out the framework for how to develop uh, an Alberta biochar greenhouse gas offset system. One of the challenges you have is the quality of the biochar, its stability or recalcitrant uh, qualities, and, uh, and how do you verify that? How do you uh, really truly account for the, uh, for the material going in there. We're having enough tr trouble trying to uh, uh, verify the uh, uh, gasoline consumption of Volkswagen diesel engines, w let alone for us to try and be able to put biochar on the ground and be able to quantify it so that an auditor can uh, be assured that the protocols are in place. So yes, work has been done on it, but there's more work that needs to be done. So I, I think I partially answered your question, but is there an aspect to your question that I did not answer? No, you have. Thank you. Thank you very much for the question. 
My name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you so much, Don, for coming today and presenting uh, a complex topic so uh, briefly and, and completely. Pleasure is mine. Thank you. Um, the conversation around the table included the fact that we talked about uh, the fact that the Biotar idea is not a new one. It's been going on for many years, uh, back to the uh, Second World War. And um, the reason that it hasn't developed more quickly is obviously the fact that we've had such cheap oil in the world. Uh, that has uh, slowed down the, the initiative for this very important uh, to, uh, matter to be pushed ahead. Uh, my question is, Don, how, in your opinion, how quickly do you think that things will move along, uh, along those lines in the future? Thank you for the good question. Time, well, uh, time in my mind is worth more than money. You can always make money, but you can't create time. And our children, our children's children, and successive generations need our time and attention. And uh, uh, what has been driving the major advancements of uh, our civilization have been the, uh, uh, the urgency, uh, the necessity, uh, and, uh, uh, and President Kennedy said in the early 60s that uh, uh, we should put a man on the moon within 10 years. Now that, that drove a whole lot of industry which also uh, developed and sustained the uh, security of North America by that one initiative and has set the tone for the technology de development that we have uh, and uh, enjoy today. So uh, I put it to you that where there's a will, there is a way. We always have money to fix things. We never have money to prevent them. And so with that, if we look at uh, insurance on our homes, there's still people out there that don't insure their homes. And they get caught and uh, they suffer the consequences or the Alberta government comes along to help them bail out, such as in High River, flooding, such as in Fort McMurray, fire. And I put it to you this way. If we are really serious about our health and safety and protection of people who are developing the resources in our province. And we have them living in towns that like to have forest combustible materials outside their back door across the back alley and not having sufficient fire safe zones. That fire safe zone, call it a fire guard or whatever you like, but that would reduce the heat intensity of a forest fire from providing the combustion uh, uh, of homes. And the huge cost that it takes for us to mop up afterwards and the cost to our families and to our industries as a result of the risk that we put ourselves to in these northern communities. I suggest that there's an opportunity here 
where you could take that combustible wood in that fire zone and you could anticipate the maturity of some of our forests, you could anticipate where we are most vulnerable, and you could in fact go in there with relocatable biochar producing units and we could convert that material to put up, provide a safety to our communities, could produce the biochar, and you could put that to agricultural purposes. So there could be a, uh, a small p political will that could be at the grassroots where this captures the vision and the importance of the time to be able to drive this concept. And so I put it to you this way, that if our health and safety of our communities is important and our aging forests, which are at the cusp of uh, the natural cycle of burning, there is an opportunity. And if we could put a man on the moon in 10 years, I think we could put our efforts and our priorities into saving and protecting the health and safety of our people in the province. Thank you. Uh, Knut Peterson, my name. Thank you for coming from uh, way up north. <laughs> Last I looked at the map, Burgerville was kind of in the center of the province, but thank you. <laughs> uh, my question relates to uh, you mentioned uh, <coughs> as long as the wood has not been treated with uh, chemicals or anything like that, it would be entirely possible to use uh, any kind of wood. Uh, we have probably millions of tons of uh, building material going into our landfills every year, which uh, potentially could be used in this regard. Could you uh, expand on that a little bit? Yes, thank you. Uh, first off, I think there's a lot of shrubbery and there's a lot of uh, uh, trees and willows growing along the sides of the road, the right-of-ways, and a lot of that material is either burnt up, uh, it's not really diversion from landfill in my mind since you're just burning it, uh, but there is also your construction and your demolition materials that oh, some five or six years ago uh, in government, there was consideration to uh, es establishing a uh, policy to divert that material. And because of other priorities in the government, that was not followed through. And I suggest that with our intention to uh, minimize or eliminate the need for landfills by 2050, that there's a huge potential there to take that construction demolition wood, which has not been treated, and to be able to convert it to value-added materials. Uh, and so all of these technologies are available, and the, uh, the economics of it is driven by the quantities and the, uh, the, the need that we have as a society, as a need for our municipalities, and why uh, build great ski hills in Alberta to uh, 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 divert this material where it could be source-separated. 
and that source separation can mean the, the uh, uh, separation between uh, the gyp rocks and the treated wood and uh, the other materials that go alongside of the construction debris. Uh, and I think it's achievable. And we did have that on the table five or six years ago. Uh, personally, I'm speaking from my own person here, that uh, I would like to see that uh, uh, reevaluated and opened up and done something done about it. Thank you for the question. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. Given that we need to increase our food production globally, we need to double it by 2050. I wonder if you could say something about research and development in other parts of the world. Who, who is leading the research and development on biochar? I noticed that you, the slides that you put up had products produced in China, but um, where is most of the biochar currently being sold? Who's producing it? And what volumes are we talking about in terms of sales? There's a lot of interest in the higher density populations of the world. Uh, these, uh, uh, and where the, uh, uh, the cost of labor is low, and where the regulations are also not as stringent as we have here. All of those contribute to the economics of developing a biochar industry. What is lacking is the uh, uh, adherence to the quality that we would want to have in the biochar entering into the food chain. So uh, regulations are there for a purpose, and uh, I'm proud of the fact that we have uh, regulatory agencies in our, in our country that have as their for foremost uh, mandate, which is the health and safety of people in the food chain. But uh, the places where it is growing the fastest is in Southeast Asia, a little bit in, in uh, Africa. In Africa, what they're looking at is uh, 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 waste to energy, and if there's a little bit of ash left over and it looks black, maybe it must be biochar. Uh, I say that a little tongue in cheek because the ash, uh, the carbon content in the ash is nowhere near that of what you would normally have. But there is a, a classification within the International Biochar Initiative that anything greater than 10% carbon in the, uh, in the ash it can be considered as a biochar. The quality, of course, has to be considered. So there I, I, I mentioned about the, the low labor rates and the access to a feedstock in Africa. Uh, most of the products coming out uh, in any quantities are coming from Southeast Asia, in particular places like South Vietnam, uh, where I know product has come uh, through uh, a California-based uh, company called Cool Planet. And so these biochars come into uh, our province and into our country. And uh, I'm very pleased the fact that we do have a Canadian Food Inspection Agency and uh, more attention needs to be placed on the quality of the biochars coming from places offshore and the establishing of standards and the adherence to these uh, uh, standards, although we can challenge them, but I, th I think the quality of the material goes into our land, that goes into our food chain, is important. So, Southeast Asia and Africa.
Hi, I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you, Bev. Thank you very much for your talk. <clears throat> you, did, you mentioned that biochar would be good in cleaning water, but you didn't tell us much about it. Um, one of the big problems is that the water cleaning plants, water treatment plants, don't take um, uh, antibiotics, antidepressants, and um, uh, estrogens out of water. So my first question is, would biochar be able to clean these out of the water? My second question is, you mentioned animal waste is, could be used in making biochar. We have a biodigester just outside of Lethbridge, um, which can take animal waste and make it into fuel. So I'm wondering, what's the better use of animal waste? And apparently human waste could be used in the same way in the biodigester. Could human waste be used to create biochar? So there's two questions there, which is better? And could human waste be used? And my third question is, you talked about the biochar to be used in the tar sands to remove the toxins. I mentioned oil sands. I don't recognize the term tar sands, sorry. Uh, you must have recognized it since you translated it. But uh, OK, in the, tar, in the oil sands to remove the toxins. Um, but when the biochar absorbs the toxins, then um, what use is there for the biochar as I understand the toxins would then leach back into the soil from the biochar over time. So would they have to be isolated? Um, could they be burned? Well, you've uh, certainly asked a, a number of important questions. And for me to be able to answer them briefly would be a challenge. And uh, But what I can say, number one, is the fact that um, the uh, uh, the I'm sorry. One was the water. Okay, so the the, the water to extract uh, or remove the toxins that are in some of the organic compounds. Uh, you can treat the biochar afterwards. It's kind of like uh, the. Uh, uh, the biochar would need to be removed of the toxins either chemically or, uh, or through a cold radiation or some means to safely make that material safe again. If you uh, wanted to, you could combust it as a bio-coal and then you could extract the, uh, uh, the emissions that may come from the combustion of that material through a scrubbing mechanism. So there's ways and means to be able to make it safe to our environment. This, uh, uh, that, in my mind, is not the issue. Uh, the, the opportunity is how do you uh, economically uh, produce the biochar and in integrated that into our, uh, uh, in, into our economy to displace some of the activated carbons. With the activated carbons, and the functionalized carbons, what you're basically doing is creating a huge microporosity, and you are creating a, uh, a huge surface active area within the biochar. And uh, the, the best way that I can visualize the microporosity in biochar, which is typically in the range of 30 to 50 square meters per gram, 
or activated carbons being anywhere from 500 to 1,500, sometimes 2,500 square meters per gram. That's too much for my head to try and figure out. But the easiest analogy that I can uh, describe is it's like the paintable area inside a, an apartment complex. When you think of how much paint goes on the outside of a building versus how much paint goes on all the interior rooms, the kitchens, the bathrooms, the closets, all that paint that has to go into all the interior rooms in a hundred uh, uh, apartment complex. So that gives you a visual representation of how much porosity or space there is for living and the amount of surface area there is for the microbes to live in there and to be able to make it beneficial in an agricultural purpose. I've maybe deviated a little bit. I've answered some of your questions, but is there, uh, is there another burning aspect to your question that I have not touched on? Or have I done the, the usual uh, political thing? Ask me a question, any question you like, and I'll tell you exactly what I want to tell you. You've made her forget the third question. <laughs> it's, it seemed to me that you were combining some of the answers. Um, our table really wanted to know, with the coal, with the biochar, how is it different from coal if you burn it? And oh. does it still give off greenhouse gases? But anyway, that's for another day. Thank you. Okay, just in simple terms that bio, uh, uh, biochar does not contain mercury and uh, biochar does not have a, a lot of the uh, uh, compounds that you have in uh, coal. So that's how it avoids all those, uh, those emission issues. Okay, thank you. Douglas Mitchell, I'll keep my uh, question simple. Uh, You've done a lot of R&D, and you're still working at that. The thing, the next stage, of course, is getting meaningful, um, practical experiments to show us agriculturally that this is a good thing to do and where it's a good thing to do. Could you uh, maybe enlighten us a little bit on what the possibilities are and where you're at with that? You've got the federal government on board to some extent in terms of certifying. And could you maybe elaborate on where you hope to go? Because until you get uh, worthwhile large-scale experiments done using this, it's going to be a slow process. Are you from Missouri? <laughs> there's an old saying that there's a doubting uh, Thomas from uh, Missouri that doesn't believe until you show me. And it's kind of like the dragon's den, and uh, you want to have something that's already proven itself before somebody wants to try it for themselves. And so there's always those people who will uh, take the risk to do the development work, and then there's others who will be on the tail end of the implementation. So the, uh, the early adopters, uh, if you look at the... Uh, uh, the exploration of North America, and uh, you get the explorers, and then you get the settlers, and then you get the developers. Uh, there's always people along that chain of what we call the S-shaped innovation curve that uh, will jump in early, and uh, some people will never be uh, satisfied that it's uh, going to be economic and safe to do so. 
we have demonstrated through our research that the, there is strong potential and that in the right conditions, uh, the uh, economics are there when driven by uh, uh, compelling reasons. And I think we are seeing some of the compelling reasons in our, in our time now, and I think the time is right to us for us to act. So hopefully I've addressed part of your question there. This will be the last question, uh, Rob. Oh, and I, I was just hoping that you would just re revisit. My name is Rob Lavoy. Um, Donna mentioned I have a product, so that's I'm selling biochar. So don't think of me as the biochar sales guy. I'm just asking questions to try to clarify. So y y there was a question about um, the biochar requiring heat, and so emitting CO2 because of the heating up of biochar. I think you missed the part about biochar being an exothermic type of process, the pyrolysis actually generating uh, the volatile gases that come off are flammable and are used as the heat input. So you can, I, I'll let you elaborate on that because you're the expert actually. Well, thank you for uh, holding my feet to the fire. And uh, uh, in measurement of heating values, uh, we know there's about uh, 8,500 BTUs per pound, but we, in the metric system, we consider that to be about 19.5 gigajoules per ton. When you uh, uh, pyrolyze that, you will convert the biomass into a solid, liquid, and a gas. Each one of those three uh, constituents will be roughly one-third. And so the amount of energy that's liberated by the volatilizing, making gas out of the biomass, uh, that synthetic gas is enough to sustain the operation to be able to produce the biochar and the bio oil. So no external heat need be applied. Does that make it a little bit clearer? self-sustaining by its own internal uh, heating value. But you've got to get the fire lit first. One more. Okay, this is Serge Manco, uh, down from Milk River. But anyhow, I was wondering if you uh, had done any research on the alkaline with the biomass. I think we uh, discussed that a little bit earlier in terms of the solenetic soils and okay. the challenges that we have there, but you can corner me afterwards to ask me more particulars if that did not answer the question for you. But I know this uh, young lady in the green over here wanted to ask a question, and I would ask if we would permit her time to be able to get to the microphone. There is seniority in the room, and I defer to that seniority. Oh, oh, thank you. Um, there is a, a question I was thinking about. Considering how urgent this problem is, uh, we're falling behind with mending the damage that we've got, that these environmental catastrophes cause. And this Fort McMurray fire is one of the things that 
really concerns me, we're putting lifetimes of trees that have sequestered carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and they're burning, and they're putting it all back. Uh, many, many years back in a very, very short time. And I think that the subject is really very, very urgent. But um, is there a likelihood that we may run out of biomass to um, prepare into biochar? And is there any likelihood that one would have to start growing crops to convert to biochar to get the atmospheric temperature down. I mean, there is a competition. Uh, we could use just wood, um, but would that be enough? We can't afford to sacrifice all the boreal forest. Thank you for the question. And I don't think that any one technology or method will solve the problem. First off, uh, we have an insatiable desire for energy, and it's unprecedented in the history of this world. Uh, and we need it for security. We need it in order to maintain uh, our country, our civilization, but somewhere in there, uh, we have to restrain our appetite and better use our appetite and uh, uh, better use the fossil fuels. Uh, having said that, if you were to cut down all the forests to, uh, uh, excuse me one second, uh, the there's not enough forests to be able to solve the problem because of our insatiable appetite. And to cut down all the trees to save our planet, I don't know if that's saving the planet. And so therefore, uh, we have to be smart, we have to be wise. And wisdom comes from uh, the application of knowledge, not just being book smart. It means having to be very strategic, setting our priorities, and having the outcome well-defined. And it's very difficult within political systems in our world where we have defined periods between uh, elections and what makes a good public policy. So there's not enough wood in the world, but it can be a demonstrated effort that in conjunction with other initiatives can make a significant difference. And it can be done in a way to improve our health and safety, which is why I come back to a strategy by which we can protect our communities and how we can better manage our forests by having access to aging forests and uh, having a long-term vision for how to better utilize our resources. Thank you very much for your very good question. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Don, for coming down. And